Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben from the Lean Blog. This is episode number 28 of the Lean Blog Podcast for July 29th, 2007. I'm very pleased to be joined once again by um, author and consultant Norman Bodak, who was the original guest on the first ever Lean Blog Podcast just over a year ago. So we're celebrating the first anniversary of the Lean Blog Podcast with Norman again, talking about uh, a number of subjects from the lean world. I've taken a bit of a break, but we'll continue to post podcasts on a weekly schedule again, at least for the next four weeks. Upcoming guests include Dr. Sammy Bari, the world's first lean dentist, Bob Emiliani, the author of Better Thinking, Better Results, among other books, and with Chris Harris, the co-author of the book Developing a Lean Workforce. I hope you will subscribe or stay subscribed to the podcast and that you'll enjoy future episodes. As always, show notes and more information can be found at leanblog.org, or you can go directly to the podcast main page at leanpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Norman, it's great to have you back with us again here on the Lean Blog Podcast. Hi, thank you. It's always a pleasure for me. Well, thank you. And we just have to do this more often because I keep discovering so many wonderful things that I love to share. Well, good. I'm glad you've uh, decided to help share some of that here on the podcast today. I know we have a lot of things to talk about. Um, one thing that I thought we could start with, I got a question uh, from a blog reader and a, a podcast listener, Jeff Mailing. He wrote and mentioned that he had seen you speak at the uh, the first ever TWI Summit, which we've talked about quite a bit on the blog, and, and he mentioned your opening address, which ended with a, a big ovation and what Jeff called the, the Pledge of Continuous Improvement. So I was kind of wondering if you could talk about um, what you spoke about at the TWI Summit, and then Jeff was wondering about your reflections on the summit and, and thoughts that you've developed on how TWI can be used to help develop people. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was really wonderful, you know, because I went there, I went there, and I wasn't even sure why I went because, you know, it's all the way across the country. I flew from Portland, Oregon to then Orlando mm -hmm. to keynote for about an hour. They're nice people, and they're on the subject of TWI, which I knew very little about, starting to learn a lot more mm -hmm. now. And I do feel it's worthwhile for people to start to look at it. It, it is. It's excellent. It, there's sort of a missing gap in so many American companies on how to train people, mm -hmm. how to train people yeah. on their work. How to, and this is really towards developing standardized work. So I, I flew in, quite a little bit tired, and, and um, I was very happy that uh, Jim Hunziger picked me up with uh, John Shook. Mm -hmm. I never met John before. And um, we had a wonderful discussion coming in from the airport. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have a lot of common friends and common oh, things sure. that we know. John worked 10, 12 years at, uh, at Toyota and has written some books. Mm -hmm. Learning to See was one. And then we come to the hotel, and they had uh, the TWI Summit had a meeting room set up where they were having dinner. So we went in there and had dinner with them. And then Jeff Mailing, what a wonderful guy, works with IBM. I think it's up in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe so. And he brought with him a case full of books, old books. Really old one. Yeah, he told going me to back, ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, going back, you know, about a hundred years, and um, <laughs> I was fascinated because you know I published a Henry Ford's book from 1926, 
And I always wanted to go back to publish more of the old books. Yeah. I always did, because you can learn so much from it. You know, when we study Taylor or Gilbraith or, or Gant, uh, we're normally studying, you know, I don't know how many iterations, which means how many people have written about them, written about them, and written about <laughs> mm-hmm. them. And then you're getting like, the, you know, maybe the ninth or the, or the tenth distance from the originator. Sure. And so it's fascinating to go back and look what the original people saw. Well, I picked up one book by Henry Lawrence Gant, and um, in fact, you can get this on the internet, and it's called Organizing for Work. I'll tell you, it is absolutely and, fabulous. And, and this this is the name Gant from uh, Gant Chart fame, correct? This is the man from Gant Chart. Mm-hmm. Now, I've known about Gant Charts, never really worked with them, but known mm-hmm. about them. And it's all part, in many of the books that I published on quality, there are Gantt charts we talk about. Sure. How to use them. Well, what I loved in the book, particularly, became so fascinated with it, is Gantt talks about democracy in the workplace. Mm. He talks about, fundamentally, that there are, there are three systems. Three systems. One is the political system. Mm-hmm. The other is the religious system. The third is the business system. And he said all of these three systems, to be successful, must serve society. Must. When a political system doesn't really serve society, it ends up in wars. (laughs) It ends up taking from one group and giving it to another Mm -hmm. group, uh, the way we do in our tax structures. The um, religious system, you have the same problem with this. When it doesn't really serve people, and serving themselves becomes very, very confusing. And he feels that religions today are utterly confusing. I mean, what maybe there's nine to eleven thousand different religions mm-hmm. on the earth. And, and uh, this this was Gant saying this when he wrote it a hundred years ago, or how long? Back yeah, was this is nineteen nineteen in this book. He's talking about fundamentally that these three systems they must be organized around serving the community. Sure. To give an example whereby when you lived as a, in a farm community in early America, say early early 1800s, and, and you needed to have the hay uh, ground down, mm-hmm. there might have been a miller in the area, and, and they would do that for you. They would, they would mill the corn mm-hmm. or the, the hay or et cetera. Small little companies, you know, blacksmiths and carpenters and et cetera. Yeah, tradesmen. Yeah. And, and, yeah, tradesmen. And then business got bigger. Business started to come in, this third area called business. And then he gave the example of the mill in Minneapolis. And because it was able to produce a bigger equipment, it was able to do the milling so much cheaper than the local mills that quickly it, it gobbled up the local mills and they went mm-hmm. out of business. Sure. And then big business starts to take over. Where the little mill used to serve the community, the big mill ends up not serving the community. Of course, it has to serve its customers somewhat, right. but it doesn't serve the ultimate oh. consumer. Yeah, it's also looking at shareholders and all sorts of other structures. Yes, you're that absolutely aren't right. There. And, yeah. and Gant was really concerned about this business community that started to grow, this business organization that started to grow. That if it didn't serve people well and ended up serving the stockholders and the senior executives, you know, right. it would really corrupt the society. Yeah that we function in. It's really wonderful when you read this um, to think about what we really do want. We want a democracy in our society. And we want these three instruments, the educational systems, especially. Education was, you know, very often Mm -hmm. 
taught to you by the church instead of the state. But now it's taught to you by the state yeah. as opposed to the church. Yeah. And, and all of them really have to serve. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, mission statements of, of different companies, you know, a lot of companies will talk about shareholder value kind of first and foremost. Um, Toyota talks a lot about community and, and society as other companies yeah. do. Um, yeah. I was wondering your, your thoughts on how that, that sense of serving community ties into, um, the Toyota production system or lean more generally. You're right. You're right. You're right on target. This, this, there are so many things, subtle but very powerful things that have made the Japanese corporation so successful in the last 60, 70 years. Now remember, at the end of World War II, a hundred cities were totally destroyed. They were burned mm-hmm. to the ground. And these, these companies had to start literally all over again from nothing and to build up their companies very slowly through Kaizen, through continuous improvement. In fact, it's funny because Toyota thought at the end of World War II that MacArthur would only let them make bean paste. <laughs> bean paste is very popular in Japan <laughs> yeah. for candy and for miso soup. But then MacArthur said, no, you got to make trucks and cars. The society needs you. Yeah. It's MacArthur who did that. And, though, and so many of the Japanese companies, in their vision statements, primarily talk about, look, you have to succeed. You have to make money. Sure. You have to make a mm-hmm. profit. But fundamentally, they're in business to serve society, and they don't want to lose sight of that. And so they came up with, and I think this is also MacArthur, they came up with lifetime employment, that we're going to invest in people. We're going to develop people. They're the real assets of our company. Mm-hmm. They're the real assets, and we're not going to lose them so easy. And Toyota has not laid off a person, to my knowledge, in 57 years. Because when you have lifetime employment, it really forces the manager to be such a better manager. Right? You have to be so good if you can't let people off. You mm-hmm. have to figure out, what am I going to do with these people yeah. so they become so productive? Well, can't, you, you might look at it that you have an obligation to your employees then to uh, make sure that the business is in a, in a position to uh, to grow or at least not be shrinking where, you know, maybe like so many of the uh, Detroit automakers, they've been in that cycle of shrinking and having to let yeah, people go. But Mark, you're absolutely right. I mean, the difference in Detroit, the Detroit organiz- Detroit corporations were in business for their stockholders and for the senior executives. And they looked at the union workers especially uh, as adversarial, and the middle workers were just, you know, they were just floating around until in the middle of the 80s they started to get rid of them. And so the corporation didn't really focus on serving people well the way Toyota does today. Toyota comes to a community. They went to Georgetown, Kentucky to build that plant. They gave about $8 million to the local university, to the engineering school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they invest in all of their employees. They encourage them all to go to college, and they'll pay for the college. Right. They continually develop thing. people. That's a wonderful thing. It's, it's worth it to go back and look at Gantt and see how we could reorganize ourselves. Now, there's another thing I saw that I really loved. <laughs> a few things I'd love to share today in the time that we have. Yeah. Um, in the current National Geographic magazine, this is the July issue, there's an article on ants, bees, fish, mm-hmm. colonies, swans. And it's really saying the following, that an individual ant, you know, it may be not be the brightest, might not be the most intelligent ant in knowing what really to do, but it knows how to function in relationship to the fellow workers, to the fellow ants. And they communicate very well with each other. They communicate through through pheromones, through smell, mm-hmm. through touch. 
And so this ant, which is very adaptable, by the way, this ant can literally do almost anything required by the community. The community has to make a dam, it'll guess, make a dam. If yeah. it has to go get food, it'll go get so food. I, I guess in a way you might say the ants are cross-trained. <laughs> yeah, they're totally cross-trained in order to function. Yeah. Now the amazing thing about this ant colony, <coughs> there is no boss. There are no managers. There are no supervisors. Hmm. They're, they're somehow they part of the system. They know how to function in a community mm-hmm. without the management structure that we have. That's wonderful. Look at you when you go home. When you go home to your individual community, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need a boss. You don't need a supervisor or a manager to have you live in your life. But yeah. when you go to work, all of a sudden, we need a different structure in order to function. And here this article is showing you that nature doesn't need that. Yeah. Well, maybe there's nature's more. Al- nature's able to what's called self-organized. Yeah. Well, maybe there's more of a human need to be the boss. So we find outlets, you know, political or in the business sense. Uh, well, it's funny the way it is because we, we, we're not structured properly. I'll give you another thing that I always loved is what's called social technical design. I always thought if we took social technical design and we put it on top of the total production system, we'd have absolutely the best uh, system to, to produce products. Yeah. As an example, social tech started in England during World War II. A man by the name of Eric Trist. And Eric was doing some work for the Tavistock Institute. And, uh, and he studied the mines. The mines was very vitally necessary. You know, they needed coal mm-hmm. to heat the, the country, to burn, you know, for electricity, etc. It was vital to coal yeah. mines. And, but they also needed workers to go to war. They needed the men to go to war. So the mines were starting to be depleted. Well, he did a study of a bunch of mines, and he found one particular mine was very productive, so much more productive than the other mines. And he went there to find out why. And what do you think he found? Did it follow that ant structure? It followed the ant structure. There was no supervisor. There was no manager. Mm -hmm. They had self-organized, where each one in the mine had to learn each other's skills. They had to learn to coordinate. They had to learn to move in sync. They had to, they had to learn what's called flow manufacturing or flow managing <laughs> right. the flow, flow, the process flow. So it all worked together well. They self-organized. Now, social tech from this, Eric Trist said that he, you know, it really got excited and he started to study and to teach this, mm. what's called social technical design. Mm-hmm. Social technical, socio means the social side of the business. Technical is the technical side of the business. How do we make sure that they both work in harmony? So when I discovered this, somehow accidentally discovered it, Poses was a man's name, right? Poser, the man's name who introduced me to it. Mm-hmm. I think that was his name. And then I did some research, and I found Eric Trist, and I found Albert Churns in England, and then I found Lou Davis at UCLA in the Quality Work Life Center. Lou was a professor there, okay. and he was teaching social tech in America. And I asked Lou to speak at oh, quite a number of my conferences. I got him some clients, Continental Can. Mm-hmm. And then he told me about Skippy Peanut Butter, and I interviewed the plant manager of Skippy Peanut Butter. They were in Arkansas. Okay. They had about 126 people in the plant. There was only a plant manager, no supervisors, no managers. Hmm. In fact, his secretary, his assistant, was also the nurse. Yeah. <laughs> and the way it was self-organized is when you would join the plant, the company, first of all, you'd be interviewed by your team. Your team would select you. And then when you came into your team, you were paid basic salary to get started. Mm-hmm. And the team would describe to you what the tasks are in this team. 
and they would give you six years. If you want to go come to the highest salary level, it'll take you about six years. You could do it sooner. Mm -hmm. But in order to get to the highest salary level, you had to learn all of the tasks and become efficient in them. Not only efficient in them, you really had to know how to teach others these tasks. And these tasks were, you know, quality, mm -hmm. maintenance, uh, scheduling, you know, oh. all of the things that are run in a plant that are acquired. Mm -hmm. All plants that we know of in America, right, they have all oh. these separate departments. <laughs> so, yeah, there's specialization. Purchasing department, mm -hmm. HR department, scheduling department, right? Yeah, and God forbid you have a quality department responsible for quality. And a quality <laughs> department. And this also funny is that this is the only plant that, that Lou Davis knew of where the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, said you didn't need a quality inspector. Yeah. Because all of the workers were trained to be quality inspectors. Not only know how to inspect, but they also had to know how to teach. Yeah. They knew all the quality tools as an example. This very excited me. The only thing that was missing, it was missing some of the Toyota understanding of how do you reduce setup time very quickly, the work of Dr. Shingo. Yeah. It was missing, you know, poke okay. Right. It was missing the idea of a pull system instead of a push system. Right. So the, you know, subtle differences. Yeah, so the the thing that comes to mind to me hearing about the structure of that Skippy plant and, you know, self-organizing or, or self-managed organizations, you know, you, you look at the structure within Toyota and, and sometimes compared to mass producers, they look somewhat heavy, in supervision and management ranks, you know, uh, fairly well-defined roles of, you know, how they're supposed to be supporting the employees and supporting production in a, a fairly, you know, defined and, and standardized way. So how do you bridge the yeah, gap? Absolutely. Very, a good observation, uh -huh. Mark. So how would you bridge the yeah, gap there? Yeah, very good. You see, if you're looking at Toyota today, you know, you're looking at one moment in time. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at Toyota, where they came from, which is that totally destroyed plant city. And then you look, say, 50 to 100 years from they where are they going? Mm -hmm. And that's what we should be looking at, is where are they going? And that's why this ant <laughs> colony fascinates me, and social tech fascinates me, because that's where we should be going. Right. Now, then... if you get a philosophy in a company that you don't lay people off, right, then you're constantly training people to become what? To become engineers. Mm -hmm. So Toyota has a structure now that works for them and it works for them very well because they're investing very heavy into every single employee. Mm -hmm. All employees are cross-trained, right? They're right. all cross-trained. They're all involved in Kaizen, continuous improvement. They're all in quality circles. And it amazes me why American companies are not in quality circles. That, to me, is totally crazy. Yeah, so they have like one team leader for every four to seven people. Right. But fundamentally, mm -hmm. that team leader is a teacher. Right. Right. And a teacher it, teaching the, the workers, actually also teaching the workers to become teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so they can promote up through the ranks. And, yes. Yeah. And, then, and then look at the way Toyota grows. They mm -hmm. just need people because they're growing all over the world. So are, That's pretty are, exciting stuff. Yeah. So you, you're saying that you know, looking to where they're, they're going, um, you know, most of what we read and hear about Toyota probably has at least – a two or three year lag time by the by the time they're willing to let information be public and books get published and so we're all I guess in a way looking in the rearview mirror. Do, do you think Toyota is trying to develop their people and, and their organization to move in the direction of of being more self managing? Um, in oh sure, point? oh mm -hmm. sure. I think so in every possible way. I'm going to be there in Japan 
September. I'm going to go visit to it. I've okay. been there in maybe 12, 15 years, so I'm anxious to see the vast changes in Japan because the American plant is very good, but it's, it's, I don't think it's equal, equal at all to what's happening in Japan. The American managers don't push the American workers the way the workers in Japan are pushed. Yeah. Even at Georgetown that's been up and running for, what, 20 years now? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not. In fact, I walked into the plant and I said, you know, what's your tack time? And I thought it was 53 seconds, but I'm not sure. And then I right. said, what, what's the tack time in, uh, in, in Nagoya? And in Nagoya, and they said 53 seconds. I said, but I'll bet you, you have a lot more workers on the line than they have in Japan. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, yes, that's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. What percentage more they have in America, I don't know. But surely there is a lot more. Uh, but that will slowly change. It will change as the American worker becomes more educated mm-hmm. and more experienced, especially in self-managing. Um, the other thing, you know, which is interesting, of course, is ultimately, and I wrote about this on Northwest Lean, ultimately the goal is to automate a plant. It's the only way you can compete with countries like China or Malaysia, mm-hmm. yeah. or Indonesia, or India. Yeah, you have and, to automate yeah. the plant here. Yeah, and, and for the listeners, I, I did republish that. I'll, I'll link to it off of the, um, the the page for this podcast episode, but Norman was good enough oh, very to, good. to let I me mean, republish and, and, you that. Know, yeah. because, because, you know, we have to automate. And Toyota did that. Toyota really, um, in fact, when I was there last summer and met Gary Converse, the president, he was president at the time. He was kind enough to meet me and my group. Yeah. Um, he said that in the last five years, they've reduced the number of people in Georgetown by 700. And they probably doubled the number of cars that they've been producing. Yeah. And, and, that's... and they moved in tons of robots into the plant. Yeah. Now, they're not that excited about robots at this moment because their quality defects have been up. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people so, would think, you know, robots, quote unquote, don't make mistakes like people do. Yeah, well, robots make mistakes because it takes time to pro- to, to program them and mm-hmm. to get them super efficient. Right. So, and, and I'd like to hear your comments. A lot of times, we we think of uh, we have reflexes against automation because a lot of times, you know, automation is used to get rid of labor cost and, and maybe you know it's, it increases total cost overall. People get laid off. Or there's things that are bad for the, the community or, or bad for the company. What do you understand about Toyota's approach when you say? Yeah, you know, they have fewer employees. They have more automation. Um, did they? But they don't lay people, anybody off, Mark. Yeah, they had people leaving, laid off. They had people leaving through attrition. Well, the main thing to do is they're expand. They keep expanding. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, yeah. They make another plant. They put a plant in Mississippi, and they need a whole bunch of people to be kind enough to move yeah. there. And they keep expanding. They 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 make people engineers, and they don't have to hire as many. And Toyota did one thing, which is not advertised very much. But there's always a buffer stock of people. You know, there's always a group that is temporary. Right. That that is there to protect the the permanent employer the long term. They don't say lifetime employment, and since nobody gets laid off, you virtually have lifetime employment. So they only they if anything they cut back on these temporary workers. Right. And th- I did see an article in the news about how uh, Georgetown had let go. Or they had announced they were going to be letting go some temporary workers, and yeah. there were some reports of people were upset because. They at least had the hope. Who knows what the exact expectation was, but they had the hope that you know, being a temporary employee was that 
learning path to eventually becoming um, it was it, it is it's an avenue and it's still an avenue mm-hmm. but at least it gives Toyota some little buffer right because you know uh, there is ups and downs in the autom- automobile industry right. they're not always selling the same amount or always selling more so they have to buffer a little bit yeah and they buffer uh, through a part-time labor that's very small I'm sure it's less than 10% of the laborers are part-time laborers or temporary laborers mm-hmm. And most of them don't work for Toyota. They work for a part-time agency. Right, they're a contract firm. Right. Yeah, but they do try. People come in and they like them. And they will let them come into the company as a full-time sure. employee. Honda did something very clever a long time ago. Is When they ran into trouble, they asked the employees to go out and sell cars. <laughs> and so they went out and knocked on the doors of their neighbors trying <laughs> yeah. to sell cars. Very Another thing I like, if we have time for... A, Couple more things. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, I like talking with you very much, Mark. Well, thanks. Um, I should pay you to for <laughs> me to talk to you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. There are a couple more things that mm-hmm. that there are seven basic ways, and I have a new book that I'm working on with John Stewart. John was the former manager of the final assembly line in Georgetown. He had oh, a couple mm-hmm. of thousand people working for him. Then he went to England, and he became the general manager of uh, the Ford, I mean, of the Toyota plant in England. Mm-hmm. Now he's left. He's working in an investment company, but he's working on a book with me, and it's wonderful. And in the book, he's very clear about the waste and the meaning of the waste. And I love this. Here, I've been studying the waste for what twenty-five years, mm-hmm. and didn't really know it the way I'm beginning. Mm-hmm. Beginning. To so, learn. what have you learned? Well, what I've learned there are two things that. There are seven classic ways. And then I added one, I believe it was me, which was that the eighth waste is the not utilizing the talents of your workers, mm-hmm. the unutilized talents. And then what came to me is the ninth waste. And the ninth waste is manager's resistance to change. So you break that out as a separate category. It has to be, yeah, because what stops progress? See, Toyota has a system. So the managers can't resist. In fact, the chairman, Okuda, said a couple of years ago, he said, look, I want everybody in Toyota to change. And he said, at least don't be an obstacle for someone else that wants to change. Mm -hmm. Most managers, unfortunately, are obstacles. They resist change. They're afraid of change, afraid of making a mistake. And so they don't change that easy. I mean, look at Quick and Easy Kaizen. It is dynamite. It is dynamite. Every company I work with is saving about $4,000 except one. Is saving about four thousand dollars a year per employee from their ideas, and these managers resistant. Why aren't they doing it? Yeah. Why aren't they utilizing the talents of the people that work for them? It is amazing. So we have to. That's the reason I want this as a ninth waste. Is we have to develop a way that will actually force managers not to be obstacles. I'll give you an example that John has in his book. One of the things the manager has to learn how to do is be on the floor all the time. Oh, no, insisted mm-hmm. on that. Gary Converse is the president of Toyota North America. His office is right in the middle of the factory. Right. Oh, and Gary, right in the Gary middle of the uh, just retired not long ago. He's close to retirement. Yeah. I don't think he's out yet. He okay. shifted. There's, they have a new president now yeah. in Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, D'Angelo, I think, is his name. And um, Gary's office was right in the middle of the factory because that's where the heart of the company is, and you have the power to direct it where it's necessary, when it's necessary, you know? 
And so if you go out and you meet somebody and they present a problem to you, okay, problem to you. In Toyota, you solve that problem. You do it immediately. You go into five whys if necessary. Mm -hmm. But this is taught throughout the Toyota organization. You solve the problem immediately. You don't let it linger. You don't wait for a committee. <laughs> I mean, I walked yeah. into a plant not long ago, and there's only – we'd start off with seven ways. And the first waste I like to look at is waiting time. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to see waiting time. Oh, sure. You look at people not working. And so what do you do? You turn the other direction, or do you go over to that person, and do you say, you know, what's the next thing that you could do? What could you do next? What problems do you have in your area do you think you can begin to work on? Yeah. Well, Sam, right, right there, that's a fundamentally different approach of asking people what should you be doing as opposed to feeling like you have to direct them. Yeah, you know, the trick is that's another, that's a big power of the Toyota system is to ask instead of tell. Mm -hmm. Owner would never tell you. Even if he knew the answer, he wouldn't tell you. And this has been passed down to most managers at Toyota. Mm -hmm. If they know the answer, they're not to tell you. They're to ask you. It's the Socrates <laughs> basis. Yeah, it's so hard to do. <laughs> It's, but it's you got, hard to I know. I had yourself. a company. Yeah. I had a company with 127 people. I never asked anybody. Just go ask them. I never <laughs> asked anybody because I was the boss. Yeah. Right. I made the most money. I owned 100 percent of the stock. Why should we, I ask anybody we, anything? We, we should have asked recently. Here we talked to one of your old associates, Gwendolyn Galsworth. Yeah, ask her. <laughs> <laughs> Except she's lucky. She's doing wonderfully well now. Yeah. She's probably the best around with this whole visual system. Oh, sure is. Been very successful with it. So we have to work on this ninth ways. And one of the best ways to do this, of course, is that the managers look at the ways, look at the ways, go out to the factory floor and challenge people to eliminate those ways, to continue to improve. We've got to do Kaizen every day, not just Six Sigma once in a while, not just the Kaizen Blitz once <laughs> in a while. But every day we have to do continuous improvement. If that's the Toyota method. You know, if you're successful and you succeed on something, Maybe they'll say thank you. Not guaranteed. But they'll always tell you to do the next thing. Yeah. The last thing I'd like to talk a little bit about, and we can come back to this and revisit them in the future. Yeah, we can talk again. Is uh, what I call conscious learning. And this is my new book that I'm working on. That's going to be the title of it? Yeah, I believe so. Be conscious learning. Mm -hmm. Working on it. Hopefully I can finish it this summer. And the essence of this really is that you go to school, you go to, you go to grammar school, maybe go to high school, then you go to college, mm -hmm. and then you graduate and you go out into your company, and learning fundamentally stops. Yeah, you go to little learning. If you're given a new job to do, a new task to do, a new machine to run, you have to learn that. And the company gives you a little bit of training during the year, not too much. Companies are pretty proud. Hey, we give 24 hours a year to our employees in training, yeah. you know, something like that. They'll say that they do two hours a month. Maybe they put people in training, maybe three people a month in training. But if we're going to succeed in this world, you know, training has to go on. Education has to go on for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. When I graduated high school, you know, when I graduated high school, I remember the famous song, uh, No More Pencils. <laughs> and no more books. Right. And no more teachers. Do you remember? Dirty looks. Uh, dirty looks, <laughs> yeah. So happy to get away from school. And now I'm telling everybody, forget it. Yeah. 
forget it. You want to do one thing. This is to everybody who's listening. You want to do one thing, really one thing. You want to educate, you want to learn the rest of your life, right? You want to pick one thing, one thing to be great in. And there's so many needs in our society for people to be mm-hmm. great. And just be great in something. Yeah. And then become the Tiger Woods of that. <laughs> become the best in the world yeah. in that one thing. And you have to succeed. Guaranteed to succeed in life. Yeah. Well, and the audience you're listening, you're listening to, the audience you're talking to, and I think we're, we're getting up to about 1500 listeners per podcast. You know, these are people, a lot of the listeners are taking their own personal time. They're listening during their commute, they're listening uh, during their own time, which I certainly appreciate, but it goes to show people are interested in learning and, and, and thinking about things even in their own time, which is great. It is great. Yeah, everybody out there, you know, just become the best possible thing that you can do. I mean, what I want to do is I want to be the best in the world teaching quick and easy Kaizen, mm-hmm. which is how do you get everyone to recognize they're creative and to use it on the job. Um, I, you know, at Gulfstream Corporation, one of my clients, a thousand people gave 16 ideas in February 2005. 16 implemented ideas from a thousand people in one month. And last year they got 20,663 ideas. 20,663 ideas from the same thousand people and saved $1.1 million. Yeah, that's great. And that's in, that was in Mexico. That's worth about 12 million in America. So I thank you, Mark, very much. And the only thing I would say is, you know, tell everybody to go out and read my book. <laughs> we we always do. I'll put links. Um, again, if people want to visit uh, the website, they can come to leanpodcast.org. There'll be links to Norman's books, as always, and previous podcasts if you're just getting caught up to it, if you're a new listener. There's a lot of good stuff in the archives, and as always, it's, it's uh, always very enjoyable talking to you, Norman. Thanks for Mark, you're wonderful, and I appreciate it so much, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.